Um, before we get started, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Lord, for this evening. Thank you for this series of Theology on Tap. We pray that you would be with us tonight and help us to reflect on the gift of femininity. Um, we ask especially for the intercession of Mary as we talk about womanhood, as we pray together, Hail Mary, full of grace, In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I love talking about authentic femininity, but when this talk was given to me, um, phrased as practical femininity, how do you actually live as a Catholic woman, I was a little overwhelmed, because even just thinking about a lot of female saints, Saint uh, Catherine of Siena, Saint Therese, Saint Gianna, Beretta Mola, uh, Mother Teresa, Saint Joan of Arc. You have quite the variety of women and their charisms and their gifts and their backgrounds. So, you know, how do you say these are the five things you need to do to be a Catholic woman and have a gold star? You know, that's not really possible. So, all of us come from different backgrounds. We have different gifts and talents, different history, different circumstances, different state of life. So it's hard to say, here's the steps, you know, meet these steps and you're golden. So rather than do that, what we're going to do tonight is talk about some basic principles and how are those things applicable to each of our lives, we'll have to kind of consider. And men, of course, we're talking mostly about womanhood, but hopefully there are things um, in here that are worth reflecting on for you as well. Um, when I was given this talk, I also thought about when I was in graduate school at the John Paul II Institute for Studies on Marriage and Family in Washington, D.C., and we took a gender class. And normally you hear a gender class and you think, oh. Um, but when you take a gender class at the John Paul II Institute, it's a little bit different than gender at, you know, I don't want to name any schools, but in the class, I thought, okay, this is a topic I've been so interested in for years. I wrote my thesis on this. I'm really excited for our professor to say, this is what a man is, and this is what a woman is. And he, he's sitting there at one point, he says, now, both men and women are called to have all of the virtues, but in a masculine or in a feminine way. So what does that mean? You know, normally you hear men are brave and strong, women are kind and gentle, you know, very simple, right? But the more I went through the class, the more I realized, no, that's not really true because women are called to be brave and strong and kind and gentle, and men are called to be brave and strong and kind and gentle, but the way that we live those virtues out is different because men and women are different, but sometimes you want to like slice it right down the middle and say men and women are two halves that make a whole, they're polar opposites and they complement each other in this perfectly matched way, but we are called to many of the same things differently. And so as I reflected on that, I thought, okay, so what is at the heart of being a woman? How can you say this is true of every single woman. Because half the time when you say anything, a statement like, all women are blank, someone will raise their hand and say, I'm not, or I have a friend who doesn't like that, or whatever. So 
to avoid all of that, the simplest way that I have found to say this is true of every single woman is that every woman is called to be a daughter, a sister, a bride, and a mother. So those are the four things that we're going to focus on tonight. What do each of those mean? How are those applicable to our everyday lives? And to do that, I'm actually going to rely on some artwork. So I never use PowerPoints. I hate PowerPoints with a passion. But I'm going to be using pictures that will be on this screen over here. So throughout, we'll, we'll talk about some of these different pieces of art that I think express a lot of this in a way that words are limited. So what I would invite you to do is if a particular one of these roles strikes you, or a particular image to go home with that and pray with it and meditate on it and to ask, okay, what's God telling me or inviting me to do through this particular phrase or image or whatever? And just um, one other thing before we really get started, too. When I would speak to high school and some college students and I would say, what does it mean to be a woman? Nine times out of ten, the very first thing that they would say is it means to be strong and independent. That's the crux of it, is to be strong and independent, usually followed up by some anecdote about a grandma or a friend or someone who was a real woman because she did everything by herself. And that has to be about the opposite of what we're going to talk about tonight, because as you notice, all four of those roles, daughter, sister, bride, mother, involve other people. They are all relational. And though we look at, you know, the cover of a women's magazine, and it is always one woman by herself, when we're talking about what it really means to be a woman, we're talking about relationality. How are we receiving and how are we giving? Okay, so with all of that, we'll go ahead and start with yeah, um, our first role, which is to be daughter. And we have all seen the painting of Michelangelo on the Sistine Chapel of the creation of Adam. Um, and everyone always focuses on Adam and God and their fingers meeting. But what many people have not noticed is that behind God's other arm is a woman. So behind his arm is Eve. And the structure surrounding God looks like a brain. So some people have said that this represents the mind of God because this is before Eve was created. But what I think this picture highlights for us is that woman is the daughter of God, that she is beloved to God. And beloved means dear to the heart. And what we see here is that both man and woman have a unique and unrepeatable relationship with God. They can be in relationship to each other because they're first in relationship to God. They can be in relationships, relationship with others because they've been created. Where there once was nothing is now not just something, but someone. You were literally loved into existence. And so the foundation of who we are and our identity is something that we receive. So our dignity, our value, our worth is something that we can never earn or deserve. It's simply given to us. We receive it. We're entrusted with it. And we are given the task of you know, living in a way that corresponds to that dignity. But it's not our responsibility to 
you know, deserve this or earn this or win it or anything like that. So at the ground of who we are is to receive our identity, to, to be a gift created by God and to understand that before anything else, we are dear to the heart of God, the Father. So, in fact, everything that we do is a response to God. Has anyone ever been to Newport on the Levee in northern Kentucky? Some of you have? Okay. I haven't been there in a long time, but I remember this long hallway. I mean, huge hallway. It's probably like half of a football field, or at least it is in my mind. And I remember walking from, you know, the exit of the actual, like, mall part to the actual exit where you walk to the sidewalk and walking through that long long hallway and this man was pushing his daughter in a stroller and she was probably two years old and the entire length of the hallway she was saying I love you daddy and he'd say I love you too and then she'd say I love you daddy and he'd say I love you too and I thought well it's really sweet but I also thought this is really funny because she can only say I love you because he said I love you first right she can only, she's only capable of saying I love you. Really, her I love you is I love you too, really, to her dad because she was, you know, her mother and father loved each other and she was brought into existence. So her life comes from their love and they have allowed her to be able to say I love you too. So it's kind of an interesting picture for me to think about us, that everything we do is a response to God. And our I love you to God is really an I love you too, because we're always responding in everything that we do. One other thing that I want to do as we go along with each of these four roles is to highlight one temptation that we have, often as women, that counteracts the particular role that we're talking about. So we see in this picture the beauty of Eve as a daughter of God, receiving her life as a gift, loved into existence. In the next picture, we see Eve again, but we see in original sin that when the serpent said, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will become like God, that there's something very interesting going on in that temptation. Because Adam and Eve already were like God. They were created in God's image and likeness. And so part of the original sin was to not trust in God's goodness and to instead try to control and to grasp or take. So you sort of see this action here. The grasping and taking of the fruit is also really representative of us trying to grasp or take our dignity, our identity, our worth, to dominate, to master, to control, to not trust in God's goodness, but to say, I want to take it for myself. And this idea of grasping versus receiving can be true of all of us. But I think a lot of times women have a particular um, tendency toward this in certain ways. You have something as, as simple as on Facebook posting a status about how, you know, uh, fat and ugly and stupid and whatever else you are in order to get people to write and say how beautiful and wonderful and smart and everything else you are, right? Because you want people to tell you that you're great, and it's not happening. So how can I make that happen? I'm going to put this thing out there and see how people respond to me, right? 
I mean, you especially see this with high school <laughs> students, right? Um, so, you know, we have things like that. Or even as we, um, in relationships, you know, in our mind thinking, I want this to happen, so I'm going to do this or say that in the hopes of controlling the situation to get what I want. Um, or we do that in our relationship with God sometimes, where we are saying, okay, I'm going to try and manipulate God here, which is impossible, but I'm going to try because I want this, so I'm going to do these things so that he can't say no, or whatever it might be. So this temptation to grasp instead of to receive really goes against the heart of what it means to be a daughter. And in the next picture, we see, though, a sign of hope in an encounter between Mary and Eve, that you have Mary comforting Eve and saying, okay, this has happened, but God is, is here with you, present with you in his merciful love, wants to restore you, wants to heal you, and wants to allow you to once again um, receive his love. And we are all given that invitation every day in our lives to once again be restored and, um, and healed again. All right, now we'll move on to sister. So being a sister, um, you know, it's interesting if you think about being siblings with someone, you don't choose your siblings. They're given to you, and you grow up with them. And uh, there's something that you share in common, if nothing else, even if you're completely different. You share your parents, you share your origin, you share your home with them. And there's something very secure and settling about being with someone else who knows you so well, that they know exactly where you've come from and everything else. There's something also very frustrating about siblings, right? And um, there's no one who can annoy us more sometimes than our siblings um, because they know us so well and because we feel like we can be super comfortable with them and do whatever we want. Um, so it's kind of an interesting dynamic, and I'm not going to focus on that part so much. But there's a security with siblings because we know where we stand. We know them, they know us, and we feel like we can be ourselves. We don't have to put on a show. We don't have to try and get something from them. We can simply be ourselves. And so if we're talking about the relationship of sister with women as sisters of each other, which is hard for me to talk about because, like I said, I have nine brothers and no sisters. So I don't have a biological sister. But nevertheless, Mary in the visitation here reminds us that we don't have to have a biological sister to experience this. Mary and Elizabeth in the visitation are such a beautiful example of being sisters, of being present to each other, of sharing each other's joy, each other's sorrow, um, walking with each other, building each other up, encouraging each other, being present um, sometimes with words, sometimes just with being there. I mean, if you think about Mary being pregnant, newly pregnant, first trimester, which having just finished myself, I can assure you is quite miserable, um, or can be quite miserable, she had that experience and yet was traveling to be present to her cousin. So she wasn't focused on herself and saying, okay, I don't feel so well right now, and I want Elizabeth to come to me because I don't feel well. So she, if anyone's going to come, it should be her coming to me. No, she was focused on Elizabeth. And what does Elizabeth say when she comes? She doesn't say, oh, wow, you've come here to celebrate my life. No, Elizabeth's first thought is on Mary and rejoicing with her about um, her carrying uh, the Lord within her. So 
they're just a beautiful example of, of sisters being present to each other and putting each other first, being um, selfless in their relationship. And women are especially interested in people, in their backgrounds, in their life, in their story, getting to know each other, um, you know, and, and wanting to have that sense of, you know, who are you and how are you doing and being present in that way. So it's really something beautiful as sisters, whether biological or as, you know, friend sisters, um, how we're able to experience that, um, that interest in people and that unconditional love. Um, I also want to talk for a minute about a brother-sister relationship. This is a picture of the marriage of Tobias and Sarah from the book of Tobit. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to summarize the book of Tobit, but it's only 12 chapters, and I highly recommend you read it. It's excellent. Beautiful story, um, but it gets a little complicated, and um, we'd be done with the time if I tried to explain it to you. However, what I will say is that um, Tobias and Sarah marry each other, and on their wedding night, Tobias says, let us pray. My sister, my bride, get up, let us pray. And he calls her my sister, my bride. Now, a lot of people hear that, and they say, ooh, that's gross. You know, what is he talking about? Or if someone were to say, if a, if a man were to say to a woman, you're my sister, we kind of insert, you're like my sister, which means I have no interest in you. You are my friend, and that is all we are moving on. But in reality, to say my sister, my bride, is to recognize that we have this common origin. We are created by God, so we have this dignity. We both have this dignity, and we also hope to have a common destiny, to be with God eternally, and to have that as our vision. And St. John Paul II would talk about how uh, the love between a brother and sister is disinterested, which doesn't mean I'm not interested in you, but it means instead of being focused on myself and interested in what I'm getting, I'm interested in you. So I'm not in this relationship for myself, although it's not to say I'm not receiving something in this relationship, but my focus is on you. And so we see that in a brother-sister relationship, and, and Tobias and Sarah are a, a beautiful image of that, of putting the other person first, having a disinterested but still real and beautiful love. In fact, a real, authentic love should be disinterested in the sense that it should be selfless and not selfish. And so we see an image of that with them. Now, the temptation I want to focus on is gossip. Because if women have a particular interest in people, and we want to know people and be present to people, that can be distorted because we want to know so much about people that we'll talk about people when they're not there um, in not great ways and um, want more information about people. Tell me what's going on with this or that. Um, and, you know, even something like social media sometimes, even though it's not talking with another person, it sort of becomes at times this uh, field for gossip to learn, okay, so this person's doing that, and this person's doing that, and I don't like this, and I think that that's wrong, and I can't believe that they made this choice, and they wore that thing, or whatever. Um, 
So we just have this temptation to let our interest in others be distorted away from a disinterested or selfless interest in others into one that becomes more about me and what I'm thinking and comparing myself and and that sort of thing. So that's the um, temptation I want to highlight. Okay, next we have um, woman as bride. So every woman, whether she's married or not, is called to be a bride. We are called to receive the gift of our lives from God and to respond with our own love in return. And so sometimes this is visible through marriage, which is called to be a sign of God's love for his people. And But regardless of if someone is married or not, every person, every woman is a, is a bride, is called to receive the love of Christ and to respond to that love with her own gift of self. There's a lot we could say about what it means to be a bride, but what I'd like to focus on is the vulnerability and trust that are needed in a gift of self. Those are the things we don't tend to want to talk about when we talk about bride, wedding, marriage, love. We tend to think about, you know, flowers and, you know, wedding dresses and all these things that are kind of more on the superficial level. But when you get down to the heart of what does it mean to love and be loved, it has to require vulnerability and trust. Um, And that doesn't, that's certainly, when I say vulnerability, that is not in any way saying, you know, opening oneself to being abused or used or saying, do whatever you want to me or anything like that. It's to say when you've met a man who you can trust and who you know loves you, we're called to be open to receiving that love and to loving in return. And that requires that trust and vulnerability. Um, And also related to that is this idea of receiving. And again, that can be difficult because we want to say, I want to be in control of everything. You know, I don't want to to not be in control. So when we receive, it it makes us feel sometimes like, well, I I don't know what's going to happen and I can't control the situation. And that's why I love this picture, which I know you can't see super well. But um, has anyone ever been to Mother of God in Covington, Kentucky? Couple people. Okay. So that's where we got married. Um, And this is one of the stained glass windows in there. And I love it because wedding at Cana, you see that they are out of wine. And you see that what the bride is doing is not running around and finding the chief servant and yelling at him and telling him, hey, we're out of wine. There's a problem here. you got to take care of it. Come on. Some, you know, there's people here that need wine. Can you please come over here and do something? That's not what she's doing. She's looking down at her glass, almost like she's trusting that the wine will be provided. And what the husband is doing is not running around looking for the waiter and saying, hey, Uh, we got a problem over here. My wife needs some more wine. Can you please make some happen and come over here quickly? No, what he's doing is he's looking to Christ. And they're trusting in different ways. Like you can visibly see that they have trust, but it's it's expressed differently. Um, But they're both looking in some sense. They're trusting, and he's looking to Christ to fulfill that need. So neither of them is saying, I'm in control here, I'm dominating this situation, I'm the master of everything, but instead being 
as Ephesians chapter 5 says, subordinate to each other in Christ. They are both servants of Christ. I think it just does a really beautiful job of depicting what trust and vulnerability and that mutual gift of self um, as a bride can mean. Um, So when I, um, before I started actually dating my husband, but we were, you know, sort of in the talking stages, um, and I was about to give a talk on love and responsibility and theology of the body at Marion University in Indianapolis, and he said, can I come with you to the talk? I'm like, now, most people say, okay, how are we going to address the chastity issue? Like, when are we going to talk about this? I'm like, well, this is great. I'm giving a whole talk, and uh, (laughs) he's going to be right there, so he's going to hear everything, you know. But um, anyway, so we drove to Indianapolis, and then um, driving back again, and I wanted to, um, I was driving, and I wanted to, um, to drink some of my water, but the, the water bottle lid was on it. And normally I would have no problem opening the water bottle myself and whatever, but I was probably wearing a skirt or something and felt weird about like trying to open it and drive and you know, whatever else. So instead I just said, um, would you mind opening this water bottle for me? Which I didn't think was a big deal. But what I didn't know is that his first response was, whoa, this is a girl who knows how to receive. She's willing to ask for something simple, but she's actually willing to ask. Because so many times our first response would be, uh, I got this, I don't need anything. Um, and so just that simple openness to someone helping in a very insignificant way, which to me didn't seem like a big deal, meant something more to him. So then, of course, we got married at the church, so it all came full circle. Okay, <laughs> so if you're driving home tonight, water bottle, you know, might help if, you know. Anyway, okay, all right, so um, for the temptation I want to talk about, I have no picture because I couldn't, I tried, I couldn't find anything to exactly, uh, you know, symbolize this, but the, the temptation against being bride is to think that my dignity or my um, equality, if you will, um, requires being the same as men. So you have a lot of women that say, I am equal to men if I am like a man. I could do everything that men do the same way that men do to have equality, to have dignity, etc. And even in small ways, I think we sort of, I mean, this is like the air we've been breathing in, right? Since the 60s, this is like, so we've all grown up post this, you know, generation where we feel like we have to prove ourselves and prove our ability to do anything else in the same way or better than um, a man would. And we're different. We both have dignity. We both have value. One's not better than the other. But we, um, our dignity actually comes from receiving that difference of our male or femaleness from God. Um, but the temptation can be, I'm going to assert this myself and be like a man. Okay, that's it for bride, so let's, now we can move on to mother. And every woman is called to be a mother, whether physically or not. Um, It's really part of our nature. Of course, we see this reflected biologically in bringing a child into the world, a child entrusted to one to care for and to nurture um, and all of that, but it's not just, it's not because of that that we say, 
you know, this is um, true. Women are pregnant and they nurse and whatever else. Therefore, women are called to be nurturing. Rather, it's that women are called to be nurturing, and that's reflected biologically. It's so true of us. It's more so to the core of who we are that it's ca it can be reflected biologically. But whether or not a woman is physically a mother, we are all called to be spiritual mothers. We are all called to nurture, to, um, to love, to cherish, to, um, to notice the good of other people and to encourage them to notice their needs and to want to meet them, to be present to them. And so this is, um, this is true of everyone, even young, young children. I remember when I was in kindergarten, I remember this boy, and I won't say his name, just in the off chance that he's listening to this. Um, but I walked into kindergarten class one day, and it smelled very much in the room. And I was the loud, bossy, oldest child who had to just say, say everything, you know. And I, so I asked my teacher, why does it smell so bad in here? And she said, um, so-and-so had an accident. And so I look over, and the little boy is in by himself in the corner in his humiliation of what had just occurred. And all the other kids are as far away <laughs> as they could possibly be playing in the other corner because it smelled, and they didn't want to be there. Um, and I remember my five-year-old self walking over to the boy and giving him a little hug and of support and then running off and being with the other kids <laughs> where it didn't smell so bad. But I was, I knew that he needed someone to comfort him, even at five years old, that I could sense he needs this and I wanted to support him and be present and notice this um, and, and be there in it. So in a very, um, you know, it's very natural to us to notice the needs of others. And this is what John Paul calls the feminine genius, is that we notice the needs of others and love in a very unique and powerful way. My husband is a high school teacher. He's um, a religion teacher and a campus minister, and it's a small school, so everyone has to do, you know, so much, uh, so much stuff. So, you know, it's pretty overwhelming. And last semester, there was a student teacher in English who had come to, um, to the school for the quarter or something like that. And she mentioned that she would like to help with campus ministry. So my husband thought, oh, that's great. I need help. I'm overwhelmed. This person wants to help. Great. Here's what we need. You know, here's what you can do. This is wonderful. Okay, fast forward a couple weeks, and we had a friend of ours um, visiting us who wants to be a religion teacher, and she went to observe class and student tea or guest present or something like that, and, um, and at the end of the day, they had a campus ministry meeting, so she got to meet this English um, student teacher, and when that was all done, she came back to her house, and our friend said, oh, I met the girl, and she's just so great, but she, she just moved here, and she has cousins here, but no one her own age, and she just really wants community, and you can tell how much you know, it, would be, it would mean to her to be surrounded by other people her age who love the faith, and she really wants to be an English teacher who is teaching the faith, but she's not sure how to do that because she's gone to a secular school, and all she's received is you know, secular philosophy, so she's just looking for some way 
So she went on and on, you know, for 10 minutes, gave me this girl's whole story and everything else. And my first reaction was, well, we have to have her over for dinner. And then we have these other friends who are teachers, and one of them studying English, too. And they love literature, and we all like to read, and we could all talk about it together and talk about the faith and teaching and English and books. And this is great. So, you know, I orchestrate this whole thing where we invite all these girls over, and what do you know? They become friends, and for the rest of the quarter semester, they spend a lot of time together, and um, you know, and everything else. And and my husband Brad, when it was all over, he said, "Wow, that's a feminine genius." I just said, "I need help with the campus ministry." Great, this is what you can do. But the girl who had come in, she said, "Who are you? What do you need? How can I be present to you? How can I serve you?" And that was her first thought. And so. These are just small examples of, of um, spiritual motherhood, how we're called to take the gift, uh, receive the gift um, of other people entrusted to us and to love them. And we see this in the Annunciation because as John Paul says, Mary conceived in her heart before she conceived in her womb. So it was her yes to God that allowed her to bear fruit, to spiritually be fruitful, which was so powerful that it physically became manifest in bearing God's only son. So this is just a, a perfect depiction of what spiritual motherhood is and how we receive, um, when we respond and we give our yes to God, how that can bear fruit. Now, there's a second picture for motherhood. Okay, this one that we all know, the Pieta. But what we tend to focus on, again, with poor Michelangelo, we're like always looking at one side of his work and not the other side. So you, we always tend to notice that Mary's, what is that? Her right arm is supporting her son. But what I didn't notice until a few years ago was her left hand, which is open in a gesture of surrender. And so Mary is really, in, in the Pieta, is such an incredible depiction of what it means to embrace the life entrusted to us, but to surrender at the same time, to not possess or to smother or to take, but to continue to be open and to say, you are first gods. You're not first mine but you first belong to God. And to love, again, in a way that is selfless to the point that it says, my first priority is you and your relationship with God. You're made in his image and likeness. You are unique and unrepeatable. You're not, you know, an appendage of mine. You don't belong to me, but I am able to, um, to have this spirit of detachment. So detachment doesn't mean I don't care about you. As we see here, you can tell how tender Mary is toward her son, and yet she can remain detached to say, you are God's, you are not mine. And so that would be at the heart of the temptation we have that goes against motherhood, which you can pull up the next one, which is a picture of the judgment of King Solomon. And you have the two mothers, the one who's, um, whose child died, and both mothers are arguing over this living child. And that's how Solomon can tell which one is the true mother. Because the true mother would rather the other woman take her child than what he was going to do to split the child in half. Um, and that's how he could tell which one was the true mother. Which one really cared about the child and which one was caring about herself and what she was getting. 
So sometimes when we care for another person, whether we realize it or not, sometimes we're caring about the other person for our own sake more than for their sake, for the feeling of being needed or to hear that someone loves us or wants us or whatever it might be. Those, those things can sometimes become more of a priority to us than what do you authentically need and how can I serve you? So motherhood is not about being in control. So just as there's vulnerability and trust involved in being a bride, there's also vulnerability and trust in recognizing that whoever God entrusts to our care, whether physically or spiritually, is his and not ours. And so Mary, again, reminds us that the first thing we need to say is thy will be done. And John Paul also talks about how Mary at the foot of the cross her faith and standing at the foot of the cross and watching her son die and still saying, I trust that God has a plan, that that bore incredible fruit, that, that, that her gift of self, her trust that was fruitful in her suffering to say, okay, I don't understand, but I know you have a plan and I trust you and I trust your plan. All right, last picture. Hopefully... This has kind of given some ideas to think about, okay, in my own life, in my circumstances as a student or at work or at home or my family of origin or discerning my vocation or whatever it might be, how am I living as a daughter, a sister, a bride, and a mother? How am I called to live as a daughter, a sister, a bride, and a mother? I was thinking earlier about um, when I was in high school and college I was very involved in pro-life work. It was a huge passion of mine, you know, prayed outside of the abortion clinic, sidewalk counseled, all these things, graduated, worked at a pregnancy center, very involved, and then I went to graduate school, and I was studying all the time, constantly. And I remember seeing one of the Sisters of Life, and their you know, whole apostolate is about the culture of life and, and um, you know, cherishing the gift of life. And I was kind of embarrassed. And I said to the sister who I'd known since college, I said, you know, I'm actually not doing any pro-life work right now. And she said, actually, you are. Your studies right now, which are about the culture of life, are pro-life work that God is calling you to do right now. And that is going to bear fruit in a way you don't know right now, but it, you know, it will, and your pro-life work will continue. Um, and I think about that as sort of an analogy to this, that instead of saying, here are the five steps that you need to follow, um, that instead it's saying, what, you know, in, in that circumstance, what is the pro-life work that I'm called to do? But in this circumstance, you know, what is the way that God's calling me to be a daughter, sister, bride, and a mother in my particular circumstances that nobody else has, the gifts, the talents, the history, everything that each unique woman has, how am I living in correspondence to that? Because femininity, and this is true of masculinity too, is a gift, but it's also a task. So it is a gift entrusted to us, but it's also a task. We're called to respond and we're called to live out um, in response to what God has given us. I have a quote from John Paul II in um, his encyclical on Mary, the mother of the Redeemer. He said, It can thus be said that women, by looking to Mary, 
find in her the secret of living their femininity with dignity and of achieving their own true advancement. In the light of Mary, the church sees in the face of women the reflection of a beauty which mirrors the loftiest sentiments of which the human heart is capable, the self-offering totality of love, the strength that is capable of bearing the greatest sorrows, limitless fidelity and tireless devotion to work, the ability to combine penetrating intuition with words of support and encouragement. So again, none of us has the same life as Mary, and yet she can be, is really the supreme model to us of what it means to be a woman and how we are called to live that, live that out in our own lives. You described femininity largely in terms of relationships. Would you also describe masculinity in terms of relationships, and how would that be different? Men are called to be son, brother, husband, and father. No, seriously, if you want to like, if you want to read more about it, I have three lessons left to write of a 64-lesson theology of the body curriculum um, for high school students. But anyone can read it. But there's a lesson on um, in the second semester. There's a lesson on femininity and one on masculinity, and it and it goes through in more detail. What does it mean to be daughter, sister, bride, mother? What does it mean to be um, son, brother, husband, father? So if you want to know more, you can go to ruawoodspress.com and click on the high school curriculum and access the five-day free trial, which will give you enough time to read those two lessons. What prayer do you recommend I pray to ask God for virtuous femininity? The first one that comes to mind is the Magnificat, um, because that expresses so much of, you know, Mary um, in her um, femininity and her response to God. She receives from God, and then she responds, bears fruit. Um, so that's, you know, a beautiful prayer. But I would also suggest actually writing your own prayer. A, a friend of mine and I did this in graduate school. We wanted to write a prayer about our future vocation. Um, and praying for different virtues and all of these things. And so we chose, um, you know, we worked together on it. It was, it's long. I mean, it was like double-sided um, page, basically. But we prayed it every day um, for years. And, um, and we, you know, chose certain saints. We wanted to ask for their intercession. And um, like I said, certain virtues we wanted to focus on and things like that. You know, patience, generosity, whatever. Um, so I would recommend that too and thinking through what is it exactly that you want to grow in or what do you think God's calling you to grow in and um, and write a prayer that you can pray um, as well and again if you want to do it with someone else and write that together then that is a um, the dimension of sister to um, to have that experience together In your opinion, what is the most common false assumption that men have about women? In general and specifically about dating. That. <laughs> that's a hard question. Um, and I'm kind of stumped. But 
I will say, th this is the one thing that came to mind. It doesn't exactly answer your question, but a lot of times in, you know, chastity talks, dating talks, things like that, is a heavy emphasis on men using women physically or pornography or things like that, right? It's like a, tends to come up a lot. But what doesn't come up much is women using men emotionally. So when, oh, Okay, if you want to see what this looks like, when you go home tonight, you can uh, YouTube Taylor the Latte Boy by Chris, the song by that Kristen Chenoweth, who is in the Broadway musical Wicked, um, she sings this song, okay? And this is the epitome of emotional using. I teach every couple years in the seminary, and we were talking about this, and I mentioned this in passing, and during the break, I could hear... Taylor, the latte boy from the hallway. Like, oh my gosh, this is different. Um, so anyway, um, if you you know want to see what it looks like, that's what. But basically, the idea is that women oftentimes will see a guy or meet a guy, and in their mind, he is now my boyfriend or my husband or the father of my children. You're like, wait, what's your name again? I'm not quite sure, but we look really good together, and you know. So the idea is a lot of times women kind of struggle with going from I don't even know you to we're married for 10 years and we're celebrating our anniversary in Hawaii and it's really great. Like in their mind, they go to this place. Okay, so I've had this really interesting experience of because I give have given talks about this sort of thing before and then talking to my guy friends over the years who experienced this but didn't realize it until someone named it and said, yeah, so girls oftentimes do this, and they say, wait a minute, I always kind of felt like my girlfriend was using me, but I didn't think that was really possible, because girls don't use guys, only guys use girls. That's like the stereotype we hear, right? So it's not entirely, how is this, uh, the most common false assumption, exactly, but, um, but it's been interesting to hear guys say, yeah, I felt that way. I felt like my girlfriend was thinking, we were already married, or she had all these expectations of things, or she, in her mind, we were somewhere that we were not in reality, and that they were hurt, you know, very hurt by it, and it affected it, future relationships and trusting and that kind of thing. Um, I've heard this from several different guys. Um, so I think that kind of is related a little bit. Um, now, of course, not every girl is doing this in her mind, right? But that's one of the things you need to pray for in terms of virtuous femininity is to be present in the, you know, in the present moment, what's reality right now, um, and how can I live or how can I love this person right now instead of some image of, you know, the future or, or whatever it might be. So I don't know that that really answers your question, but... Um, that's the best I've got. Can you define femininity? Good question. You know, I would say femininity is being a daughter, sister, bride, and mother. Um, but it's really uh, receiving the gift of being created a woman and then responding to that by living out one's femininity. So living out my life as a woman what that looks like for each particular woman, like I've said, is very different. So it's very hard to say femininity involves, you know, doing these things or being this way. But if you want to really look into this more, I highly recommend John Paul II's um, apostolic exhortation um, called Mulieris Dignitatum, which means on the dignity and vocation of women, 
or for um, something even shorter. This is not published anymore, but you might be able to find a used copy on Amazon. Is um, the USCCB published this several years ago? It's called the Gen It's called Pope John Paul II on the Genius of Women, and it's a compilation of many of his letters and um, audiences about womanhood, particularly in the year 1995, which the United Nations had dedicated to women that year. So um, it's a really helpful thing to read through and think about. Okay, what is the heart of being a woman? What does this mean? How do we live this out? Um, so you might want to look into that. Or Google John Paul II letter to women. It's very short. And, um, and he talks about different dimensions of femininity in that. What are your thoughts on historical and current feminist waves? That's another big question. Um, Certainly to um, desire that women be treated with dignity is absolutely important. And I think we, well, hopefully we can all agree on that, um, that we, we would all want women to be treated with dignity. There's a problem or a danger that comes into play when we think that treating women with dignity means treating women the same as men. Um, and we're different, men and women are different. And so equality is not sameness. If you look up equal in the dictionary, it can mean same, but it can also mean as great as. So men are as great as women, women are as great as men. The father is as great as the son, the son is as great as the Holy Spirit, etc. Um, and that's really where we take our sense of um, dignity and also um, of equality, meaning as great as, is from the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all equally God, if you will, um, but they are different. They're not cookie-cutter images of each other. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons, um, and they're not collapsed into each other or something like that, but they have a difference. They have a unity and they have a difference. And so when it comes to feminism, a feminism that denies a difference between men and women is not really um, adhering to the dignity of men and women. And one of the other dangers is when we focus and say, for example, feminism, the word, kind of is abstracted from men. It sort of says, we're just gonna talk about women, men don't matter. That's why I prefer the word femininity because it presupposes masculinity. But feminism is kind of like defining apart from men. Um, and because men and women are complementary and because we're related, you have to affirm them both together. I didn't talk about masculinity tonight because someone else had that great, great privilege last week. Um, so you did have those two together in some sense um, and two subsequent Thursday nights. Um, but we have to affirm them both and the dignity of both in order for either men or women to have their true dignity affirmed. How can you properly use your feminine genius when you have decent intuition, but you're also inclined to be bossy and pushy and want to fix everyone's problems as quickly and efficiently as possible? I wonder if you are a fellow oldest child. <laughs> 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 I, 
I never, I knew, I knew this other girl in kindergarten. She always called me bossy. Of course, it takes one to know one because she was bossy too. But anyway, I always thought she was crazy until I have an oldest daughter now. Woo! <laughs> she is showing me what I'm like in ways I don't want to know, you know. We went to a playground on Tuesday. So our oldest is four. We went to this playground, and she, this other woman and her, like, 10-month-old baby came and sat down at a picnic table. No, they hadn't sat down yet. They were coming with their food. And Gianna goes running over, and she says, um, here you go. This is a picnic table. You can sit here. You can put your baby right there. And, oh, I see that you have chicken from Chick-fil-A. Oh, that's very nice. And she sat down at the picnic table with this woman and was, like, trying to talk to her and, like, play with the baby. And you could tell the lady did not want her to be there. So we kept trying to, like, move her away. She wouldn't, do, she wouldn't you know, finally we get her to move. So then she finds another victim on the playground and this woman had like a 20 month old or something and she's just over hi baby i will help you let me help you up the steps up the steps and like her mom's right there <laughs> the mom was an oldest child too so we all bonded over this experience of being an oldest child anyway i understand um being bossy and um pushy and want to fix everyone's problems as quickly and efficiently as possible okay i would say um, first of all, the desire is a good desire to want to help people and to be with them and all of that. Probably one of the most helpful things would be to pray for patience and discernment in terms of how am I, how should I help this person? And to realize that sometimes the way we need to help people is by taking a step back, um, and waiting or, um, you know, yeah, time sometimes is an irreplaceable good. We need time sometimes um, in order to really heal something or help something or grow or whatever it might be. And so to pray for the discernment to know, what am I supposed to do right now? Am I supposed to go right in here and do what I can see needs to be done? Or in the long run, is that not the best thing? John Paul II, um, who is not an oldest child and not a woman, but he would, um, people always said they were so impressed, as young adults, they were so impressed by him because he never told them what to do, but he would ask them questions, and by the end of their conversation, they would know what to do, because he would help them to think, and he would help them to see themselves where God was calling them, or what they were um, being asked, what was best for them, what would make them happy, whatever it might be, but he had the wisdom to say, okay, I'm not just going to tell you, be a priest or whatever, you know. Um, he would ask them, well, what do you think about this? Or how has this experience been for you? Um, and that's something I think we can all learn from in our friendships too. How do we ask questions and help someone else to see? Because in the long run, that becomes more fruitful than if we just tell people we have the answer. What are your thoughts about girls joining the Boy Scouts of America. Does diversity mean equality, all things equal? So I kind of answered that part about e equal can mean as great as it does not, in this case, of male and female mean the same as. Um, so, but I would definitely not agree with girls joining the Boy Scouts because they're girls joining the Boy Scouts. <laughs> and there are Girl Scouts. Um, so, you know, I think um, that's one of the things that's, you know, about 
being a man or being a woman, that there are unique things about it. And so does it mean that women can't go on hikes and camp and things like that? No, that's not what it means. But there's something good about men being together and doing things together and having community together. So my husband always talks about how he needs man time, especially the poor guy. I mean, he, so I have nine brothers. He has three brothers. Neither of us has any sisters. Now he has a wife and two daughters. <laughs> So he's like, I need man time. So, you know, we'll go play basketball or hike with some guys or whatever. And he's not saying, I don't like being with my wife and my daughters, but he's just saying it's good for men to be together. It's good for women to be together and just, you know, be with each other, support each other, et cetera. So there are good things, obviously, about all of us being together here right now um, and, and it being in with uh, men and women uh, together, but there's also something good about men being together and women being together, and how we help each other to grow in both those settings, single-sex settings and co-ed settings. How do masculine and feminine ways of being trusting and vulnerable look different? It's kind of hard to answer because every situation can be different, right? Um, but it's true that both men and women are called to be trusting and are called to be vulnerable. So a lot of times we think of those things as, well, that's what women do. Or we think women receive and men give. And it's that clear cut. I, I remember a girl one time coming back from a Theology of the Body event. And she said, you know what I learned? Is that women always receive everything from guys and the guys always give. I was like, this girl's going to have a hard time if she gets married someday <laughs> because <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> both men and women <laughs> receive and both men and women give, but they do so differently. Um, so there are a lot of things like that we kind of like want to say, well, it's one person does this, one person does that. But similarly, men and women are called to trust and to be vulnerable. But what that looks like is hard to... Without, you know, in a particular situation, it can be easier to, to know that. But to let someone get to know you, which requires vulnerability and also trust, um, to be open to another person, but also not to just say, here I am, this is everything about my life history, I just met you five minutes ago, now you know all of my issues and struggles and everything else. You know, that's not really, um, a true sense of vulnerability reveals oneself slowly over time. And so that's something both men and women it can be tempting sometimes in different situations for men and women to put everything on the table right now, but to, to grow together slowly, reveal each other slowly, continue growing in trust of the other person, um, those are, are things that both men and women need to um, experience. When you look at um, Genesis chapter 2 and how Eve is created from the side of Adam, which, side note, I spoke at an RCIA a couple months ago, and this one woman was all upset because she said that clearly the church believes that women are inferior to men because they come from the rib of Adam. But I said, actually, did you ever notice that Adam is asleep when Eve is created, which means Adam had nothing to do with it. God created Adam. God created Eve. So Adam didn't create her. She's not lesser or inferior or anything like that. They both come from God. They both have as much dignity as anyone could possibly have. Um, but in any event, because Genesis 2 talks about Eve being created from the side of Adam, there's a wound, and the word vulnerability comes from the Latin word for wound, openness. So, you know, there we are both called to be open to each other, but that vulnerability involves 
in some sense, a wound or, um, you know, the challenge of being open and being real with another person. So that's something that we are both called to do. And so I guess Adam could be, in some sense, a um, an example of that, the good of vulnerability and bringing forth his relationship with Eve. So it was great, again, to be with you tonight. I thank you for coming, for your great questions. Um, all right, thanks again.